Early in the 2007 New Hampshire Democratic primary, America was introduced to their next president of the United States. Anything particular I should say? Just tell me who you are, what you doing. Morning. Hi, I'm Matt Santos. I'm running for president. This, of course, is not an actual presidential candidate. This is the fictional congressman Matt Santos, the eventual successor of President Josiah Bartlett on the West Wing. In this season 6 episode, Santos is beginning his presidential campaign in New Hampshire, where he wants to release his plan for sweeping national education reform. America is 49th in the world in literacy. That's down 18 spots in the last 50 years. Why? But for starters, the 180-day school year, that's based on the agrarian calendar. Santos wants to pitch the people of New Hampshire a bold vision for 21st century American education. He proposes extending the school year past 180 days, ending teacher tenure, and even nationalizing education. But his veteran campaign manager, Josh Lyman, insists that education reform just doesn't play with Granite Staters. Unfurl your brow, Josh. I've run for office six times. In Texas, New Hampshire has an education funding crisis. They have no income tax. They can't afford to pay for 60 more days of school. Which is why we need to nationalize the system. This argument becomes the central tension of this episode. Santos is dead set on portraying himself as the education president. Well, Josh reiterates that in New Hampshire, education is too controversial of an issue to run on. Here's Santos talking with a group of voters. Look, I'm not saying it's going to come without a cost. Education is at the heart of everything that we care about. Competitiveness, opportunity, equality. Shouldn't we uh, figure out what we need first and then get into the details? So you're saying no tax increase? It is true that Matt Santos is a fictional congressman running for president in a fictional version of New Hampshire. But if you ask New Hampshire voters today about education politics, this fictional portrayal of the tax-averse, live-free-or-die state seems a little bit more true to life. You do not need to increase my taxes in any way, shape, or form. You should decrease them. For people who live in New Hampshire, it seems natural that school funding is a central, often controversial, political issue. But we very rarely step back and ask the question, why? Why is paying for kids' education such a hot-button issue from town hall meetings to the governor's office? Why do so many school districts across the state have to battle every year just to pass operating budgets? And why do school districts keep suing the state of New Hampshire? I'm Henry Lavoie, and from Reaching Higher New Hampshire, this is Claremont. In this two-part series, we're exploring how exactly education became the third rail of New Hampshire politics. First, we'll look back at the lawsuits, which thrust school funding into New Hampshire's political mainstream. Stay with us. If you live in the United States, it probably seems normal that it's up to state and local governments to decide how much we spend on schools. But for something as important as educating America's children, there should be some federal law, or better yet, some part of the U.S. Constitution that regulates this whole process. Right? 
people sometimes really forget that there's two different constitutions. Like there's the federal constitution and there's the state constitution, and they're not exactly the same. That's Natalie Laflamme, an attorney based in Concord. She explains to me that because of federal mandates that students with disabilities or other protected statuses be able to receive an education, federal law does grant every child in America the right to a free public education. It does not, however, spell out the finer details of, say, how we should pay for public schools. So federally, yes, like every child has the right to a public education, but it doesn't have, at least not yet, sort of the the thing New Hampshire and other states have found of like, but the state has to pay for it. Today, there is no nationwide mandate on exactly how much states must spend on their public school systems or how they should raise the money to do so. The Fed's lack of involvement in school funding can largely be traced back to a U.S. Supreme Court case from over 40 years ago. Next in 71-1332, San Antonio School District against Rodriguez. In 1968, a group of parents in San Antonio, Texas, filed a lawsuit challenging the Texas school funding system. These parents came from the predominantly Mexican-American Edgewood School District, a low-income area of Bexar County. At the time, the Texas state government spent relatively few state dollars on public schools. This meant it was almost entirely up to the local taxpayers in this relatively poor town to pay for the majority of their school system with local property taxes. The result? Edgewood School District had one of the highest property tax rates in the county. Yet, it raised less than a tenth of per-student funding compared to more affluent, neighboring school districts like Alamo Heights. This case ran its way through the legal system until eventually it landed before the Supreme Court in 1972. The lawyer representing the parents of Edgewood School District argued that this inequity in school funding was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The court below held the Texas system unconstitutional because it distributes educational benefits on the basis of district wealth. The court said, as might be expected, those districts much most rich in property also have the highest median family income and the lowest percentage of minority pupils, while the poor districts are poor in income and predominantly minority in composition. And the court cites one of the... In this case, the court had to answer a very specific question. Does the Equal Protection Clause ensure equal school funding for all students, regardless of where they live? If the Supreme Court sided with San Antonio's group of parents, agreeing that unequal school funding is unconstitutional, they would have completely upended the American public school system. States around the country would have to completely rework their school funding models to ensure that schools in wealthy districts received proportional funding to schools in poor districts. This basically would have established a nationwide standard for public school funding. However, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court upheld Texas's existing school funding system, arguing that the Equal Protection Clause does not require absolute equality when it comes to wealth and education. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Thank you, Mr. Goshman. The case is submitted. With the conclusion of San Antonio School District v. Rodriguez in 1973, the national effort for school funding equity was dead in the water. So, a new local chapter began in this legal saga. 
In his dissenting opinion, Justice Thurgood Marshall suggested that other legal avenues still might exist at the state level. It set up the window of like, hey, wink, wink, states, like, you know, you might be able to find something in your constitution. In the years following the Rodriguez decision, lawsuits were brought in states all over the country with the goal of creating more equitable school funding. New Hampshire was no exception. One of the first cases I worked on in the civil division was called Jessamine versus New Hampshire. And Jessamine was a school funding case brought to challenge the New Hampshire school funding formula. That is Leslie Lutke, a former state associate attorney general. The case she's talking about, Jessamine v. New Hampshire, was brought in the mid-80s by five property-poor New Hampshire school districts. Like Texas, the New Hampshire school funding system was heavily reliant on local property taxes. At the time, the state provided less than 10% of funding for schools, leaving towns to pick up the other 90-plus percent themselves using local property taxes. The result was the same inequity from town to town that was seen in Texas school districts. When you only use property tax, like just different towns are just in a different place. Like most schools are not like frivolously spending money. It's that there's just a not, not a lot of property value in the town to draw from. Relying so heavily on local property taxes created a system where a town's ability to fund its schools was largely determined by geography. A select few New Hampshire communities, with ski areas, large shopping centers, or lakefront properties, had enormous property wealth, allowing them to keep tax rates low and provide their schools plenty of funding. However, districts without this level of property wealth were often forced to make serious trade-offs between high taxes and adequate school funding. By the 1980s, a growing number of school districts were becoming increasingly frustrated with this system. So, a few of these property-poor districts got together and filed a lawsuit against the state of New Hampshire. Lutke represented the state in this case. Uh, there were five districts selected, um, and those five districts were deemed property-poor districts uh, with excessive reliance on the property tax. And the case went up to the New Hampshire Supreme Court the state Supreme Court ultimately decided not to pursue the Jessamine case, because over in the state legislature, they were developing their own solution to New Hampshire's school funding problem. And it wasn't uh, pursued at that point. It was essentially legislatively resolved by the adoption of the Augenblick formula for the distribution of foundation aid. The Augenblick formula, named for the school funding expert who designed it, was a new system for distributing state funds to New Hampshire school districts. The formula was designed to cover between 8 and 12 percent of the cost of schools with state funds, targeting more dollars in the districts with the least property wealth. The implementation of the Augenblick formula was essentially a deal between the state Supreme Court and the legislature. In exchange for the court avoiding a major school funding decision in the Jessamine case, the legislature would provide more state dollars to property-poor districts. In the short term, that's exactly what happened. The Supreme Court dropped the Jessamine case, and the Augenblick formula easily passed the State House. But, in just a few years, it became clear that this deal did not resolve many of the underlying issues within the New Hampshire school funding system. Uh, my name is Tom Kinnear. I'm an attorney in Claremont, New Hampshire. 
and have been practicing law since 1979. So I'm an old guy. Ever since Tom Kinnair has lived in Claremont, school funding has always been an issue. The town of roughly 13,000 lies directly on the Connecticut River that defines the New Hampshire-Vermont border. In the 50s and 60s, Claremont was one of New Hampshire's thriving mill towns with a busy downtown shopping center. During the 70s and 80s, however, the mills began to close and many local businesses followed suit. In just a few decades, the primary property tax base, which provided funding to Claremont schools, had all but vanished. We don't have a, you know, a large ski area, we're not by a lake, and we're no nuclear power plant, so we're property tax poor in that sense. And, you know, it's hard to compete with other communities that have a much broader tax base than we do. This was the story of many New Hampshire towns in the 70s and 80s. Declining local industry meant that the high cost of public schools was increasingly shifted to residents. Some property-poor towns saw tax rates up to 400% higher than those in property-rich towns. Many of these disparities continued even after the Augenblick formula was implemented in the mid-80s. By 1989, Claremont's local property tax rate was just over $12 per thousand, among the 30 highest in the state. However, year after year, they struggled to find the money to make even the most basic facility repairs to their schools. I mean, one I can remember very clearly is that the ceiling in the auditorium area, the whole thing didn't fall down, but it was in the process of falling down and in need of, you know, immediate repairs. At one point, our high school lost its accreditation, not because of poor educational practices, but because of the ongoing needs to invest in building improvements and maintenance, which, you know, we kept deferring to a later date. Despite the reforms of the Augenblick formula, Claremont's schools remained underfunded and their already high property tax rate continued to rise. As teachers, parents, and taxpayers became increasingly fed up with this situation, Kinnair realized that something drastic needed to be done. You know, that growing realization caused me to brainstorm, hey, can we do this better? If so, how can we do it better? And if so, how, as an attorney with a legal background, can maybe assist in that endeavor? So in 1987, Kinnair ran for Claremont School Board. He won by just six votes. With his background in law, he did some research and eventually convinced the rest of the board that they should garner support for a class action lawsuit challenging the New Hampshire school funding system. At that point, we passed a resolution that we later submitted to the um, New Hampshire School Board Association at their annual delegate convention uh, that they take the position that it's unconstitutional to fund education as the state is doing. So I independently, as a delegate, introduced it Uh, And to everyone's surprise, the delegation of of school boards throughout the state said, yeah, we agree. And with that, there was enough momentum to start assembling another serious legal effort against the state. Over the course of a few years, Claremont School Board found four other property-poor districts who were willing to join the lawsuit, including Allenstown, Franklin, Lisbon Regional, and Pittsfield. 
They also assembled a team of big-name attorneys to represent them, namely R.P. Saunders, John Garvey, and Andrew Valinsky. And of course, they had to do some wholesome fundraising to keep the bills paid. To raise at least some money through, we had a big bake sale in Concord, and I was interviewed and I said we had asked the then governor to bake some brownies for us, and it made national news much to his dismay. And finally, after years of careful planning, what would eventually become known as the Claremont case was filed in June of 1991. After the break, the legal showdown between Claremont School District and the state of New Hampshire. Want to stay up to date on education news? Sign up for our newsletter. It comes straight to your inbox every Monday morning and includes a roundup of education news from around the state, links to our own original content, legislative updates, recommended reading, and teaching tools. Subscribe at reachinghighernh.org. When the Claremont education lawsuit finally began in the early 1990s, the lawyers representing Claremont presented a clear narrative. Back in the 80s, when the Supreme Court dropped the Jessamine case, the legislature promised instead to solve the school funding issue by creating the Augenblick formula. However, the Claremont team argued that the formula was not fully funded by the state, meaning that towns like Claremont did not receive the state funding that they were promised. So... That case was settled with the idea that this formula would be put into place and so more money would come in. But the legislature never fully funded the formula. So and I think the message was the state government is not taking this seriously um, and getting away with it. That's John Tobin, one of the lawyers who represented Claremont in the other four property poor districts. When Tom Kinnear started organizing the Claremont case, I wasn't involved in the in the real beginning. He talked to R.P. Saunders, who was a professor at the law school, and then they brought in Andy and some other people. Um, and I came in a little later. Claremont's argument that the state had failed to deliver on its promise to fix school funding through the Augenblick formula was a popular narrative in the press and political discourse. However, Leslie Lutke, the associate AG representing the state, was not convinced by this story. It was a great political public claim. The state, you know, exercised bad faith in, in settling adjustment. And, you know, they came up with this formula and then they didn't fully fund it, blah, 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 blah. Um, no one really wanted to look at the facts. And, you know, we're not getting 8%. Well, actually, you're getting more than 8%. The state argued that the current system of school funding was basically working as intended. Most school districts could sufficiently fund their facilities with reasonable property tax rates, and those that couldn't received state funds through the Augenblick formula. As it turns out, however, these arguments would not be totally relevant during the initial phase of the Claremont cases. In 1992, after both sides presented evidence before Judge George Manius of the New Hampshire Superior Court, he decided to dismiss the case. 
What a motion to dismiss meant is that regardless of whether or not Claremont's claims about the state failing to fund schools were true, it didn't matter, because Judge Manius believed that there was no legal basis to make these claims in the first place. So you look at the counts in the pleadings, and in a motion to dismiss, you say, all right, if everything they say is true, it doesn't constitute a legal claim. The basic challenge for Claremont's lawyers was now to convince the courts that somewhere in New Hampshire's laws or constitution, there was a clear legal principle which justified their case against the state's school funding system. If they couldn't do so, the court could fully dismiss their case, and perhaps more critically, set a legal precedent that would hinder future school funding cases. With these stakes in mind, the Claremont team appealed their case to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Here again is Tom Kinnear. So the language itself that I relied on initially and which ultimately the courts have relied on was written by John Adams. Knowledge and learning being essential to the preservation of a free government, it shall be the duty of the legislature in all future periods of government to cherish the interests of public schools. John Adams wrote this passage into the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780 during the middle of the Revolutionary War. Adams and several other founding fathers recognized that a well-educated, literate population would be essential for the success of the democratic experiment. He knew that education was, at that point in time, essential to the preservation of that government that were, they were fighting life and limb for. So, when New Hampshire drafted its own constitution, it adopted similar language, in what's now called the Encouragement of Literature Clause. The Encouragement of Literature Clause is found in Part 2, Article 83 of the New Hampshire Constitution. It in part reads, It shall be the duty of the legislators and magistrates in all future periods of this government to cherish the interest of literature and the sciences in all seminaries and public schools. The interpretation of these words would become the foundation of the Claremont team's argument. They claimed that this then-obscure clause in the state constitution imposed a serious duty on New Hampshire's government. Here again is attorney Natalie Laflamme. They based this on one particular part of the New Hampshire constitution, uh, where it just basically lays out, hey, the state needs to cherish education. That's the fun word, cherish, that they used in the 1700s. So whenever you have a constitutional provision or a statute, the idea is like you go back and look at the words and what the original intent was when it was written. And so they looked, the Claremont one is kind of interesting. They give a little bit of this history, like they look at old dictionaries, like what does what is the definition of cherish? And after all that, they came out with, no, it means like you need to support education, which includes funding. The Claremont team asserted that when the authors of the state constitution wrote that legislators shall cherish the interest of public schools, it wasn't just an aspirational statement. Rather, they thought that based on the 18th century definition of the word cherish, this clause commanded the state to provide an education to all of its citizens, which in the 20th century meant funding public schools. Under this interpretation of the Encouragement of Literature Clause, Claremont would have a clear legal basis for their argument. In 1993, the New Hampshire Supreme Court agreed with Claremont's argument in a unanimous opinion. In what's now called the Claremont One decision, 
the court held that the New Hampshire state government has a constitutional duty to provide and guarantee funding for an adequate education for every child in the state. The finer details, like what exactly adequate means, how much an adequate education costs, or where to find the money to pay for it, were explicitly left for the legislature to hammer out. In this way, the court didn't want to step too deep into clearly political waters. You know, there's the whole separation of powers and the court has again and again deferred to the legislature to say, hey, it's the legislature's role to define an education and determine its cost. That's not the court's role. Although Claremont One established a mandate for the state to guarantee funding for universal adequate education, it did not address the key issue of widely varying property tax rates throughout the state. Plus, the state continues to argue that the current education funding system was constitutional, even under Claremont 1. So, to resolve these outstanding issues, the Claremont team thought a second lawsuit was in order. Here again is John Tobin. Initially, the trial judge had said, there's no legal validity to this claim. The state doesn't have an obligation. We're going to dismiss the case without even having a trial because you've raised a legal claim that has no basis. So then when the court said, oh, yes, there is a legal obligation, then they said, now you need to go back to court and figure out what that obligation is and address the tax argument. And so that's where Claremont 2 comes in. After a long three-year period of both sides formulating their arguments, preparing witnesses, and hiring experts, a new trial began in May of 1996. The question of whether the state has to fund education had already been settled in Claremont 1. So now, the central question of Claremont 2 was how exactly the state was going to raise the money to do so. You exactly nailed it. It's like Claremont 1 is such like a feel-good opinion, like, oh, yeah, we're educating everyone. Every child's important. And then Claremont 2 is like, wait a second. I have to help pay for this? This might affect my taxes? Whoa, 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 let's back up. Again, the Claremont team and the state argued before Superior Court Judge George Manius. At the trial, several parallel arguments were presented by each side. These included how an adequate education should be defined, whether education merits fundamental rights status, and the constitutionality of the current tax system. There isn't time in this episode to fully examine each of these counts, so instead, we'll focus on the most important one, the tax issue. Both sides at trial agreed that the local property taxes used to fund education had wildly differing rates throughout the state, with the highest rates disproportionately in the most property-poor towns. The Claremont team doubled down on this point with heaps of largely anecdotal evidence. I remember actually during the, the lawsuit when the judge toured some of the buildings, what we had the teachers do which the state objected to, was to put little orange sticky tabs on everything that the teachers had purchased out of their own pocket, from books to paper and things like that. However, just because large disparities existed did not necessarily mean that the tax system was unconstitutional. The state pointed out that even in property-poor districts like Claremont, their schools were still able to meet state education standards using mostly local property taxes. Therefore, the state claimed it had met its requirement to fund a universal adequate education by delegating their funding responsibility to the towns, similar to other government expenditures like local police or roads. Again, the attorney representing the state 
Leslie Lutke. And we said, you know, the kids in these districts are receiving inadequate education. You know, the, the state regulations that that govern it are very comprehensive. They're more comprehensive than those of most other states. Um, and all the districts are meeting those regulations. And we, we, you know, the districts have sufficient financial resources available to fund these, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we have met our obligation with respect to um, adequacy of education. The Claremont team obviously disagreed with this stance, indicating that unlike a local police department, the obligation to guarantee funding for education was specifically given to the state in Claremont 1. So from their perspective, this argument about delegating responsibility does not hold for school funding. We made a, a distinction there that the school tax is a special case. I said, we're not challenging the local nature of the property tax that pays for police or road repairs. We're only challenging that part of it that pays for education because education is a state duty. After six weeks of arguments at the trial court, Judge Manius released a highly detailed 190-page decision. For basically every count, including the tax question, he sided with the state. While he agreed that large disparities in tax rates existed, he found no basis that this on its own was unconstitutional. So, once again, the Claremont team appealed to the New Hampshire Supreme Court to prove to the justices that the local property tax used to fund schools was unconstitutional, the Claremont team returned to the strategy of reinterpreting the state constitution. This time, they homed in on one particular clause in Part 2, Article 5, which says that taxes are supposed to be proportional and reasonable. Figuring out what exactly proportional and reasonable means became the central question in Claremont 2. Traditionally, the definition of a proportional and reasonable tax is one that has the same rate for everyone within a taxing district. What the court has interpreted that to mean is within a school district, a tax on a certain kind of property, the rate has to be uniform, the same. You can't tax the same kind of property at different rates. But the important distinction is that the proportional and reasonable standard only applies to taxes within a certain tax district. Since the property taxes used to pay for schools are raised and distributed within the towns, legal precedent suggested that the property tax rate only has to be uniform within towns, not between towns. This was the argument made by the state. The property tax is a local tax and therefore only has to be proportional and reasonable within school districts not throughout the state. And, you know, the taxes are reasonable and proportional because we uh, took the position that the taxes were local taxes and they met the state standard of reasonableness and proportionality. Most legal precedent predating Claremont supported the state's position that property taxes are local taxes. However, the Claremont team argued that when Claremont 1 was released and the mandate to fund education was specifically given to the state, that changed the nature of the education property tax from local to statewide. What we said was the state obligation for education is unique. It may be okay to have different tax rates for police or fire departments or local roads, but education is unique. It's a state duty. You've already said that. And so 
it was pretty straightforward analysis. If it's a state duty, then the taxing district is the state. If the education property tax was a state tax, that meant it had to have the same rate across the state, not just within individual districts. The state was pretty confident in this notion that they were sort of immune from any comparison of tax rates across district lines. But all they had to show was the tax rates within a district are fine because that had been traditionally the law about whether a tax rate is constitutional or not. Is it is it proportional within the district? This was really the only way they were going to prevail is to is to come up with a new standard of reasonableness and proportionality. And all the precedent really uh, supported the conclusion that the property tax was a local tax. I mean, to say the property tax is a state tax because it it funds a state mandated service is uh, really very much out on a limb. How the court classified the education property tax would determine whether the entire school funding system was legal. If they decided it was a local tax, it would remain constitutional for some districts to have education property tax rates up to 400% higher than others. If they decided it was a statewide tax, however, the system would be plainly unconstitutional, requiring the state to create a more equitable way to raise money for schools. Judge Manius, in his Superior Court decision, had sided with the state on this issue. However, when the state Supreme Court released their decision in December of 1997, they reversed the Superior Court ruling. They instead agreed with Claremont, writing that the education property tax is in fact a state tax, and must therefore have the same rate across New Hampshire. It's hard to overstate how monumental this decision was for school funding in New Hampshire. After Claremont won, the state was able to avoid major school funding reform under the pretense that they could delegate their funding responsibility to the towns. Claremont too totally upended that premise by declaring the local tax system unconstitutional and forcing the state to act. This was a major victory for funding advocates like Tom Kinnear. I think it became more than just a lawsuit, not just for me, but I think for all those it touched, it was almost a quixotic journey to do the right thing for our kids and their educational opportunities. However, unlike the Claremont 1 decision, Claremont 2 garnered immediate and broad criticism. For many, the ruling was seen as the first step towards the destruction of New Hampshire's anti-broad-based tax tradition. Just two days after the release of the decision, the Manchester Union leader ran an op-ed with the headline, New Hampshire can no longer live free or die if ruled by black-robed monarchs. These sentiments weren't just articulated in the editorial pages of local newspapers either. They also came from the court itself. While Claremont 1 was a unanimous decision, Justice Sherman Horton wrote a dissenting opinion in Claremont too, strongly objecting to the characterization of the education property tax as a state tax. Many in New Hampshire's legal community still view the Claremont 2 decision as a blatant example of judicial overreach. No, I think the decision is clearly wrong. I mean, if you go and you look at the legal precedent and the cases on reasonableness and proportionality, there's very little support. I mean, there's no support for, for the decision. It's really not a legal decision. It's a political decision. But Horton was just one justice of four and was ultimately outvoted. So, after nearly a decade of litigation, Claremont 
Allenstown, Franklin, Lisbon Regional, and Pittsfield School Districts ultimately won their case against the state of New Hampshire. However, the legal principles of the Claremont decisions were ultimately just that, a set of principles. It was now up to the legislature to enact actual reforms based on the ideas of the Claremont decisions. The Supreme Court wrote in their decision that they were confident that the legislature and governor will act expeditiously to fulfill this duty. But if the court was so confident in the legislature to solve this problem back in 1997, then why are the people of New Hampshire still arguing about school funding over 30 years since the Claremont suits began? Next time on Claremont. Thanks to Natalie Laflamme, Leslie Lutke, Tom Kinnair, and John Tobin for speaking with me. And a special thanks to Judy Lavoie, whose interview didn't make it into this episode. Claremont is written, produced, and scored by me, Henry Lavoie, with editing help from Sarah Earle. For more podcasts about New Hampshire school funding, subscribe to School Talk, wherever you listen to your podcasts.